This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Quote, When wireless is perfectly applied, we shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket." End quote. That was famed inventor Nikola Tesla speaking in the year 1926, some half a century before the invention of the modern cell phone. It was an idea that was already floating in the air. And floating in the air along with cell phone waves, electromagnetic radiation. In the years since cell phones were first invented, there's been alarmingly little research into their effects on human health. It's possible this radiation is dangerous, or potentially even deadly. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. 
This week, we're talking about cell phones. According to a recent UN study, there are now more mobile phones on the planet than there are toilets. And according to another study, they carry up to 10 times as much bacteria as your average toilet. We'll be looking at the potential health risks of cell phones, but not that kind of health risk. There may be much more serious risks to worry about than dirty screens. This week, we'll be taking a hard look at the facts about cell phones, how they work, how they're regulated, and their possible health effects. Next week, we'll look into conspiracy theories about what other dangers the mobile phone industry might be covering up. Do cell phones cause brain tumors? Or electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome? Or are they actually secret mind control devices? There may be no easy answer, since so much about the long-term effects of cell phones is still unknown. But first, let's take a look at what we do know. Before we begin, we need to understand where cell phones came from. Some people believe that the first cell phones were reverse-engineered from alien technology. That's a conspiracy theory for another day. But the real history of the mobile phone is no less extraordinary, and it's longer than you may think. The idea of the modern smartphone existed in popular culture long before its actual invention. One example is Dick Tracy's radio watch, which first appeared in the newspaper comic strip in 1946. Two decades after that, we saw the Star Trek communicator, which actually inspired the designers of the flip phone. Nowadays, cell phones are such a common part of our daily lives, it's easy to forget how revolutionary they really were. The earliest version of wireless telephony was developed for military trains on the German railway system in 1918. Technically speaking, though, these were truly just two-way radios. The service was later refined and offered to first-class passengers as an amenity on commuter trains, similar to the corded phones on commercial airlines today. In the 1940s, we saw the introduction of handheld radio transceivers, otherwise known as walkie-talkies. The same technology was then adapted to the automobile. Actually, if you go back even earlier, Swedish inventor Lars Magnus Ericsson, founder of the Ericsson cell phone manufacturing company, installed a phone in his car as early as 1910. But while this phone may have been mobile, it was definitely not wireless. He had to pull the car over at a telephone pole while his wife Hilda tapped into the wires. The car radio systems developed by Bell Labs in the 40s, on the other hand, was based on police radio equipment. It was bulky, often weighing 80 pounds or more. There was a battery under the hood, an antenna on the roof, a corded handset under the dash, and transmitters and receivers in the trunk. These were the predecessors of modern cellular technology, or what some refer to as zero-G, as opposed to the fourth generation or 4G phones of today. At its simplest, a modern cell phone really isn't too different from these first two-way radios. Both convert your voice into an electrical signal and transmit it using radio waves, a type of wave at the lowest end of the electromagnetic spectrum. 
Right. As I'm sure we all remember from high school physics class, the electromagnetic spectrum encompasses all forms of electromagnetic radiation, such as radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible light, x-rays, and gamma rays. These different forms of radiation are characterized by their wavelength and frequency. Radio waves are at the low end, meaning they have the longest wavelength and lowest frequency. Traditional radio communication broadcasts at a radio frequency between 3 and 300 kilohertz, while cell phones broadcast just above that, between 300 kilohertz and 3 gigahertz. Frequencies in this range, while technically still radio waves, are referred to as microwaves. Like the waves used by microwave ovens. Well, that particular point seems to be in contention, and we'll get into that next episode. But you bring me to an important distinction. Lower frequency radio waves, like traditional two-way radios, can bounce off the atmosphere and travel long distances, while higher frequency microwaves, like those cell phones use, can only travel in straight lines and over relatively short distances. Similarly, big slow radio waves can penetrate walls, glass, and thin metal, but the shorter frequency microwaves cannot. For instance, the microwaves used by your microwave oven can't penetrate the thin metal screen in the door's window. Back in the zero-G days, only three radio frequencies were available in any given area, meaning only three calls could be made at any one time without running into interference. Imagine listening to the radio while driving and picking up interference from another town's radio station. Now, imagine that happening to your phone when you're in the middle of an important call. Exactly. The real cellular breakthrough that overcame this problem was made possible by Bell Labs engineers in 1947. The two core concepts they introduced are known as frequency reuse and handoff. Essentially, microwave signals can be targeted more easily than the old radio frequencies. They're also shorter in wavelength and relatively low-powered, which means there's less interference between frequencies. All this is to say, by switching from radio waves to microwaves, more frequencies can be reused within a smaller area. So instead of a radio station's broadcast blanketing an entire city at a particular frequency, the city can be split up into smaller areas with more frequencies available in each area. As long as there's only one cell phone using a given frequency within each area's radius, there's no interference. The second important breakthrough is that these signals can be handed off between cell towers as a user moves through an area. Without the cell tower, none of this works, and that's where the technology gets its name. While telephone networks with their branching interconnected wires might resemble a web if you were looking at a map, a cell phone network's towers radiate outward like a multitude of bubbles or circles. Like cells in the human body. Exactly. Welcome to 1G. But when the technology was actually implemented, it was still cumbersome. Mobile phones were confined to cars or attached to suitcase-sized battery packs. This was an inflection point for the industry. The future of cellular phones really seemed to be the car phone. Hardware manufacturers simply couldn't imagine that this technology would ever be compact enough to be carried on a person. Industry leader Bell Labs, better known today as AT&T, was focused on car phones and pagers, and all their competitors were scrambling just to keep up. 
Though Bell was far larger and had more resources to draw upon, an engineer at Motorola named Martin Cooper wanted to give them a run for their money. Cooper joined Motorola in 1954. He, like everyone else, was relegated to working on car phones and beepers. But by the 70s, Cooper had become Motorola's director of research and development and wanted to do something bold. In just days, Cooper and his team accomplished what Bell Labs had deemed impossible. They delivered the world's first handheld mobile phone in 1973. Cooper wasn't just a brilliant engineer, but also a master showman. He staged a press conference on the corner outside Bell Labs' New York headquarters and demonstrated the new phone by calling his counterpart at the rival company, Joel Engel. Though it was a historic moment, Cooper doesn't remember his exact words, but he does recall asking Engel how he sounded. Can you hear me now? It was another 10 years before that first phone, the Motorola Dynatac 8000X, was actually made commercially available in 1983. When it was finally released, it weighed two and a half pounds and took 10 hours to charge for 30 minutes of talk time. Cooper claimed the talk time wasn't an issue because the phone was so heavy, you wouldn't be able to hold it up to your head for that long anyway. And the cost? $3,995, which, adjusted for inflation, is well over $10,000 in 2018. That makes the new iPhone seem like a bargain. After its introduction, the development of cellular phone technology continued apace. Hardware improved, became more compact, and eventually more widely accepted. But few would argue that it was the Apple iPhone that defines what the smartphone would eventually become. And this in spite of its creator, Steve Jobs, who for years had publicly opposed ever developing a phone. Jobs once said in an interview, quote, The problem with a phone is that we're not very good going through orifices to get to the end users, end quote. By orifices, he's talking about wireless carriers like Verizon or AT&T. The wireless carriers exerted far more power in the industry than the cell phone manufacturers themselves, since they had the final say on which phones could access their networks. Beyond that power struggle, Jobs just wasn't sold on the idea of a cell phone. One Apple executive was quoted as saying, Jobs wasn't convinced that smartphones were going to be for anyone but the pocket protector crowd. His change in opinion started with another pocket-sized device, the iPod. The first iPod shipped in 2001, and within the first couple years, it was a massive hit. But by 2004, the iPod was already in danger. Mobile phones had gained the ability to play MP3s and were beginning to encroach on the vaunted iPod's territory. But the iPod's success had given Apple the confidence to try new things. Ideas were being floated internally for a camera or even a car. So why not a cell phone? Well, Steve Jobs, well known for his exacting standards and need for control, was still wary of working with the cell phone carriers or other manufacturers until Apple got a relatively low-risk opportunity to enter the marketplace by working with Motorola. Jobs and Motorola's CEO, Ed Zander, were fans of one another's. Jobs really admired the elegant design of Motorola's recent cell phone, the Razor. In fact, 
Apple even considered purchasing Motorola outright in 2003, but eventually decided against it. Instead, Motorola and Apple agreed to collaborate on the successor to the Razer, known as the Rocker. Motorola developed the hardware, while Apple focused only on implementing their music player software. Long before Jobs presented the Rocker in 2005, he and the rest of the company already knew it was a disaster. Understanding the phone's limited capabilities, Apple purposely handicapped the device's iTunes functionality, making it a so-called gateway drug to a fully-featured iPod. Consumers who wanted a two-in-one phone and MP3 player were sorely disappointed. But there are those that think the rocker wasn't a mistake, but a more calculated move on Jobs' part. He was gathering information. Apple has always prided itself on fixing a product, understanding why something doesn't work, then transforming it and refining it. And the rocker's hardware really didn't work. So even during its development, Jobs quietly had teams working to build a better phone. Apple locked down one of its Cupertino buildings where the project, codenamed Purple, was being worked on in secret. I love a good code name, but Purple? No one's really quite sure, but the name may have come from the purple aardvark icon on Apple's internal bug tracking software. The building was nicknamed the Purple Dorm because the people working there practically lived there as well. There was even a Fight Club poster on the wall. The first rule of Purple Project is don't talk about Purple Project. You're exactly right. Jobs had not one, but two teams working in total secrecy, nicknamed P1 and P2. P1 was pursuing a track which would essentially add cell phone technology to the existing iPod with its tried-and-true clickwheel interface. Meanwhile, P2 was adapting the company's earlier internal experiments with a multi-touch display tablet. It was a so-called bake-off. And today, we all know who the winner was. Though P1's clickwheel iteration worked, it proved too cumbersome for the demands of a phone user. The simplicity of the touchscreen was a clear improvement. There was only one problem. There had never been a mobile phone without some sort of number pad or keyboard. Apple's head of marketing, Phil Schiller, was adamant that the iPhone must have a traditional hard keyboard similar to the popular BlackBerry. Once again, we know who won that argument. In a broader sense, Jobs and his engineers viewed the iPhone not just as a phone, but as an opportunity to usher in a new age of mobile computing, a kind of Trojan horse in the shape of a cell phone. You've hit the nail on the head. The allure of cell phones in our modern society comes down to far more than just a phone. The phone is an appliance. It's not just about how well a cell phone makes calls, which the original iPhone was famously bad at. The real genius of the iPhone is how it was conceived to be multifunctional. The iPhone could replace point-and-shoot cameras, camcorders, calculators, voice recorders, clocks, calendars, even the MP3 players from which it evolved. The iPhone, and now all other smartphones, have become the so-called one device. And because of all the devices they've replaced, we've become increasingly reliant on cell phones. Coming up... 
We'll take a look at how the mobile phone industry has grown in power and changed the face of our world in ways we could have never predicted. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. Up to this point, we've been discussing how cell phones came to be. Now, it's time to look at how cell phones affect our world and ourselves. According to the Pew Research Center, 95% of Americans now own a cellular device. Globally, two-thirds of the world's population have one. That's over 5 billion people. Even more surprisingly, cell phones are becoming the most popular device for accessing the internet. As much as 51% of all internet traffic is now being driven from mobile devices. In China, more people typically use mobile phones to surf the web than traditional computers. Given those numbers, this is obviously big business. Absolutely. The value of the mobile phone market has been pegged at around $350 billion. To give you a sense of what that means, in 2012, Apple sold 340,000 iPhones every single day. And that market value figure only accounts for the manufacturers of mobile phones, not service providers. In 2018, the 54 telecom companies on Forbes' Global 2000 list claimed over $3.4 trillion in total assets. And even though the mobile phone industry is already one of the biggest industries in the world, it's still growing at a steady pace. In the developed world, most people already own a cell phone, but developing countries are still a wide open frontier for growth. It seems counterintuitive, but it's predicted that by the year 2020, 5.4 billion people will have cell phones, which is more people than currently have electricity in their homes. And while the industry continues to grow, the number of its players has shrunk dramatically. In terms of mobile carriers, there are really only four major companies in the U.S. Verizon Wireless, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint. Together, they control more than 90% of the U.S. market. Remember names like Singular, Altel, Leap Wireless, and Metro PCS? It wasn't so long ago that carriers like these boasted significant market share, but they've slowly been gobbled up by competitors. Today, there are only two regional carriers that still have more than a million subscribers. Consolidation in an industry doesn't necessarily amount to conspiracy, but that is a lot of power to be concentrated over four companies. You have to wonder whether they're using all that power for good. Looking at the safety regulations regarding cell phones, or the lack thereof, does raise questions about whether anyone is keeping these companies in check. Before being marketed to the general public in the 80s, there was never any government-mandated testing to certify that cell phones were safe to use. The Food and Drug Administration conducts pre-market testing on nearly every consumer product sold and used in the U.S., 
not just food and drugs, but cosmetics, children's toys, everything, except cell phones. The FDA claims they have no regulatory authority to require cell phone manufacturers to conduct long-term studies on the safety of their products. Meanwhile, the FDA does test and regulate other radiation-emitting devices, such as MRIs and X-ray machines. But cell phones, which are also radiation-emitting devices, were omitted from regulation. Instead, the FDA passed the buck to the Federal Communications Commission, which regulates radio, TV, satellite communications, and the like. But according to Dr. Robert Cleveland, former director of the FCC's Office of Engineering and Technology, quote, The FCC is not in the business of basic biological research to ascertain how cell phones might affect the brain. We don't have the authority to do that sort of thing. The FDA is more in line to do that, end quote. Bit of a hot potato. Since the FCC admits they don't have the knowledge or expertise to determine radiation exposure guidelines for the mobile phone industry, they've entrusted three independent organizations to determine safe levels of exposure. The Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, the American National Standards Institute, and the International Commission of Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. That's a mouthful. Together, these bodies are commonly referred to as the ANSIIEEE. They've been the principal sources of advice on radiofrequency radiation to the FCC since 1982. These organizations are not actually responsible for testing cell phones. The FCC only dictates that cell phone manufacturers must test their devices with an independent lab to certify they're within limits recommended by the ANSI IEEE. So instead of taking a hands-on approach to regulation, the FCC is trusting manufacturers themselves to test their own products. That's right. The testing looks like what you'd expect, essentially strapping a cell phone to a dummy's head and testing the results. The important number here is the SAR, or Standard Absorption Rate, the rate at which radiation is absorbed by the body. The ANSI IEEE has set the limit for cell phones at 1.6 watts per kilogram. Some scores for reference. The new iPhone X is 1.08 watts per kilogram. The Samsung Galaxy S8 is 1.55 watts per kilogram. Just under the limit. And the limit itself feels sort of arbitrary. 1.6 watts per kilogram is safe, but 1.61 isn't? Where did that magic number come from? And how much of a difference does it make in the long term? That's the thing. There hasn't been a lot of research into the long-term effects of electromagnetic radiation. It's not clear if standard absorption rate is really even the right metric to be testing as far as safety is concerned. Most research on the subject of radiofrequency radiation is funded by the cellular industry itself, which in turn decides if and how that information is released to the public. Sure enough, when industry researchers or independent labs present unfavorable results, funding is cut or lucrative contracts move elsewhere. They aren't necessarily faking their results. No, this is very technical stuff with a lot of variables at play. So there are endless ways to shift the results in their favor without actually manipulating the data. 
Some studies might only look at people of median age, ignoring more vulnerable demographics like children or the elderly. Or, for instance, the standard dummy head used for SAR testing is based on a head size in the 90th percentile of men in the U.S. military, which is to say, a much bigger head than the average citizen. We aren't the first people to suggest that research might be swayed by the fact that the cellular industry was funding their studies. In 1993, Dr. George Carlo, chairman of the Scientific Advisory Group, publicly addressed those very criticisms. Good, solid, rigorous scientific work will be done and we'll let the chips fall where they may. Another thing to consider, most of these studies are being conducted by scientists or engineers not doctors or medical researchers. Granted, they're deeply familiar with the intricacies of radio frequencies and electromagnetic radiation, but they're not medical professionals. An engineer and a medical doctor might look at the same test results and interpret them very differently. And the FDA and FCC sure aren't concerned with monitoring the research, much less funding it. The health of millions of people is on the line, and no one in the government is even willing to look into it. The question is, why? The simplest answer is that it's just the red tape of government bureaucracy. No one is sure who's supposed to be responsible, and no agency is volunteering to take on the extra work. Another simple answer? Money. A 30-year veteran of the cellular industry, Dr. Robert Kane warns in his book Cellular Telephone Russian Roulette, quote, be particularly wary of those who make the rules and decisions regarding safety in this country because they are economically interested parties who are biased in their opinions, end quote. Members of these standard-setting bodies are often current, past, or future employees of the very companies they're supposed to regulate. The IEEE is well known to have close ties to the cellular industry as well as the military. As the respected journal Microwave News reports in a matter-of-fact article, standard-setting bodies do more or less as the industry wants. Unfortunately, this is common practice in many industries. The cellular industry's power coalesces into a lobbying group called the Cellular Telecommunications Industry Association, or CTIA, which has some pretty close ties to the FCC. That's an understatement. Tom Wheeler, the FCC chairman from 2013 to 2017, was formerly the president of the CTIA. The FCC chairwoman from 2009 to 2011, Meredith Atwell Baker, went on to run the CTIA, and the FCC chairman before her, Michael Powell, later ran the NCTA, the National Cable and Telecommunications Association, another lobbying group having overlapping interests with the CTIA. My God, talk about a revolving door. Yeah, more like musical chairs. As Dr. Robert Kane concludes, quote, if it were not for the exemption that the industry promoted, Portable phones would be in violation of all accepted standards now in existence. The devices would have been barred from the marketplace as unsafe for humans, end quote. For another perspective, here's Tom Wheeler, our aforementioned former CTIA president, speaking in 1993 on the claims that cell phones could cause cancer. These studies look at various biological processes 
which are indicators of or which could lead to cancer. And none of these studies suggest any relationship between cellular phones and cancer. Coming up, we'll take a closer look at the CTIA and try to determine whether any of our government regulators can be trusted. Now, back to the story. There's no question cell phones dominate our modern world, and that dominance may have been aided by lax safety standards set by the federal government. But was this the result of -of run-of-the-mill bureaucratic inefficiency? Or was there a darker motive at work? As we discussed before the break, the cellular industry's lobbying group, the CTIA, is something of a revolving door for the FCC, the agency that's supposed to be regulating the cellular industry. But their influence doesn't end there. According to maplight.org, which tracks corporate funds and government, AT&T alone spent over $124 million on lobbying efforts since 2008. Verizon, a close second, with $118 million and on down the list. With that much money coming in, government officials sure have a strong motive to protect the cellular industry's interests. One piece of legislation the CTIA was responsible for pushing through Congress was the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Essentially, this act restricted the ability of local communities and residents to resist the placement of cell phone towers, as well as the FCC's ability to intervene on the public's behalf. In effect, service providers can now put a cell tower virtually anywhere they want, short of private property, and local governments can do little to stop it. Cellular companies do offer a range of options to eliminate the eyesore effect. Cell towers are now being hidden inside flagpoles or street lamps, attached to utility poles disguised as church steeples, pine trees, or cacti. Oh, well, that's relief. Out of sight, out of mind. The end goal is a cell tower every five miles for undisrupted communication, or even more in densely populated areas. And remember, that's one cell tower per five miles for every wireless carrier, so multiply that number a few times. Perhaps it's worth mentioning here that cell tower radiation emissions in the U.S. are some of the highest allowed anywhere else in the world. For comparison, cell towers in the U.S. emit 5,800 times the amount of RF radiation allowed in Salzburg, Austria. The U.S.'s tower radiation emissions guidelines haven't even been updated since the Telecommunications Act of 1996, when flip phones were state-of-the-art. But if these relatively massive emissions truly were dangerous, it stands to reason we would have heard about it by now. True. There's another important link in this chain. If a damaging study were to be published, or if there were an uptick in radiation-related illnesses, those stories still need to get to the public. That brings us to the media. As we already touched upon, there's been a lot of consolidation within the telecommunications industry. Many cellular carriers are now either owned by media conglomerates or own media companies themselves. AT&T now owns Time Warner, which in turn owns Warner Brothers Studios, Turner Broadcasting, HBO, as well as cable companies Spectrum, Bright House, and Charter. 
And Verizon owns former online giants AOL and Yahoo, now rebranded as Oath. These companies' interests are now so intertwined, it's hard to imagine a news station potentially damaging the cellular industry since they benefit from the revenue of cellular companies. Even without owning or being owned by a media company, there's still the issue of advertising dollars. In 2017, wireless carriers spent over $3.4 billion on advertisements in the U.S. alone. In the age of dwindling ad budgets and competition from streaming portals like Netflix and Amazon, traditional broadcast and cable networks aren't in the business of turning away advertising dollars or maligning potential advertisers. Though to be fair, we need to consider all the sources of news that aren't controlled by telecommunications conglomerates. If there are any damning stories out there about the dangers of cell phones, they've done a very thorough job of covering them up. Nobody's reporting on them whatsoever. And that brings us to the heart of the issue. Are cell phones actually dangerous? As we mentioned earlier, Long-term studies on cell phones are seriously lacking, and though its health effects are a little understood, it's widely considered to be safe just because of how ubiquitous it is. That was also once true of many other industries, like lead-based paint, asbestos, or cigarettes. Like cell phones, cigarettes were also exempt from FDA testing. In those instances as well, the FDA took a narrow view of their mandate. Or perhaps they were encouraged to look the other way by powerful lobbyists. Actually, the tobacco industry is credited with creating lobbying as we know it today. But whatever the cause, it took over a hundred years of research into tobacco for industry authorities to even require a warning label on cigarette packages. By comparison, cellular technology is still in its infancy and it's vastly more complex to study than tobacco, it's impossible to know what we might find out a few decades down the road. Just think of watching characters smoke in old movies and cringing. Now, imagine feeling the same way 20 years from now, seeing someone chat on their cell phone. I hope that's not our future, but there are some experts who believe that the long-term illnesses endured by smokers will pale in comparison to those endured by today's cell phone users. And it's hard to believe, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. Even people who believe cell phones are dangerous are unable to agree on why they're dangerous. The conspiracy theories are endless. Next week, we'll be looking at some of the most popular theories on what exactly the problem is with cell phones. Conspiracy theory number one. Do cell phones cause brain tumors or a host of related maladies, including anxiety, hair loss, or seizures? Conspiracy theory number two. Is there truth to the claims of those who supposedly suffer from electromagnetic hypersensitivity? This condition is said to be brought on by the so-called electrosmog associated with cell phone signals, Wi-Fi, and high-tension power lines. We'll also look at how that same technology could be weaponized in the form of psychotronic microwave weapons, the same kind of weapons suspected in sonic attacks on the U.S. Embassy staff in Cuba. Finally, my personal favorite, conspiracy theory number three. Are cell phones truly a government-sponsored mind control plot? We'll also look at what you can do to protect yourselves if any of these theories turn out to be true. Whether you use a cell phone or not, 
The atmosphere is now so saturated with electromagnetic radiation that it's possible no one on the planet is safe from exposure. Get your tinfoil hats ready. They may be the only way to protect yourselves. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Join us next week for more Conspiracy Theories. Until then... Remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Nick Miller and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.